Welcome to All Things Pilates, Season 4. Though we can't know exactly what Joseph Pilates was thinking or feeling towards the end of his life, we do know he wanted the entire world to practice Contrology, and that want has certainly become a reality. Hello everyone, I'm Darian Gold, and here on All Things Pilates, we discuss the man, the method, and how his genius continues to influence and inspire. The Pilates book list is growing. And in case you don't have Eva Rinke's biography on Joe Pilates, I highly recommend it. A little bit of background before I introduce you to Eva. She was born in 1981 in Leonberg, near Stuttgart, Germany. Eva studied history and philosophy at Humboldt University in Berlin. From 2007 to 2010, she worked at Wuchenwald Memorial doing research for an exhibition about forced labor during World War II. She is a freelance historian for several historical institutions in Germany and in Austria. She wrote articles for the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's Encyclopedia of Camps and Ghettos. Eva lives in Stuttgart with her family, where she writes, edits, and continues historical research. Enter Pilates. After giving birth to her first child and needing to strengthen her body, Eva discovered the Pilates method and used it to help her return to full health. Not surprising, she was fascinated with the method and wanted to learn more about its creator. Her curious nature and research background inspired the 2015 Joe Pilates biography. Eva's book is so full of details that today we're going to just focus on Joe's earlier part of his life. And I bet there will be lots of things you didn't know. Eva, thank you so much for joining us on All Things Pilates. Hi, Darian. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm really looking forward to talk to you about Joe's life. And I also wanted to say thank you to Beatrice, uh, to Beate Denise um, for putting us in touch. And I just say in German, um, danke, Beate, und viele Grüße nach München. Oh, I like the way that sounds. Yes, Beatrice is uh, one of my students and she is a fabulous graphic artist and designer and a hard worker and has an amazingly beautiful, strong body. So she really is a proponent and an advocate for Pilates in general, not just my classes, but just how powerful Joe's work is and will continue to be. Eva, other biographies and stories have been written about Joe Pilates. What was it about his life that compelled you to write another and do you think by speaking German and living in Germany, it provided you another perspective? Yeah, you know, 
in, in the beginning, um, I learned about the existence of Joe Pilates from my Pilates teacher when I did the Pilates classes, because before that, I hadn't known about him. Even though I live in Germany and he comes from Germany, I had never heard of him. So this was actually one of the reasons I, I really became interested and, and fascinated in his life, because I thought, how is that possible? Everybody knows the Pilates method, people love it and get help from it, but nobody talks about the creator in Germany. So that was one of the reasons. And then, you know, I, I love adventure. And when I heard the stories about his life, I thought this sounds like an adventure novel, like a movie. And I, I really wanted to learn more about him and read about him. But at that point, when I started research, there was no biography. This was shortly before um, Javier's um, Perspons biography was published. So I couldn't find anything. So I thought, okay, maybe I could do some research and write the book myself so that I can read it. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, being German, I was thinking about that, um, if that um, changed anything or um, in my approach. And I think it, it might be the reason I was really especially interested in his first 40 years. So I was uh, really interested because I knew the places where he had lived and somehow I really wanted to find out something even although it was a difficult period to do research about because he was not famous then and it's always so much more difficult to find information about someone who's not well known. Have you been to those places, different towns that he was there or lived? Yeah, of course. I mean, during my research, I um, went to almost every address he ever had, and, and he had a lot. So I went to every street in Mönchengladbach and, and the area um, just to look at the houses. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, I had been in Hamburg before, where he lived for three years. I had been um, in Gelsenkirchen. So, yeah, these were familiar places for me. Even Mönchengladbach, you knew about it? Of course, yeah. Yeah, they have a famous uh, soccer team. Everybody knows that in, in Germany. <laughs> yeah. Well, most people know about Joe coming to America in the late 1920s and eventually opening his Contrology studio on 8th Avenue in New York City. But many Pilates lovers may not know of his struggles when he was a boy. Would you speak about that time period? Yeah. I, I think um, this is so interesting to think about the childhood of, of someone we know about his work. And, and then he also was a child, uh, just like um, everybody else. All of us. Just like all of us. And he had this, like, he had problems, probably most of us also know, or at least um, when, when he was a child, he had problems with other children. He really had problems to connect with other children and to become a part of the group. So even decades later, when he was successful living in, in New York and talking to journalists, he very often came up with a story from his childhood and was telling about the other children from his school, how they were calling him names and chasing him in the streets. And they were chanting this mean song, which went, 
Pantheus Pilatus, Mörder von Christus. And it, it means in English Pontius Pilate, murderer of Christ. So that was what they were calling him, making fun of his surname. And this made him so angry that he started fighting the other kids, even though they outnumbered him. So sometimes when he told the story, he said that it was um, during one of these fights with other kids in the street that his eye got injured because one of the kids threw a stone. Um, I was not able to find out if, if this was right, because sometimes he also said that the eye got injured in a boxing fight. That's what we've heard. Yeah, so he, he told both stories. The fact that he remembered about being chased in the street and being made fun of by, by the other children shows how harmful this was to him. And it just shows the pain, how he never could let go of the story and how this was really character building for him in a way. And I think he, throughout his life, he had trouble connecting with other people on a social level. So small talk, he, he didn't like small talk. He was unable to do that. But when he was an adult, it didn't matter anymore. Because if he was working with his clients in the studio, they were talking about the work and he was working with their body and no, nobody accepted, um, rejected anything about him. Yeah. And he didn't need to, you know, right. just talk and how are you and how do you feel? But when he was a child, this really was a problem because as a child, you have to find your place in the group. He probably felt like it was him against the world. Early on in his childhood, he learned pretty quickly that he was made fun of, so he had to protect himself. Who wants to feel hurt physically or emotionally? So he probably, from the very beginning, had a sense that he was on his own in terms of someone taking care of him or protecting him. So it would make sense that he, he veered towards boxing. Absolutely. He, he became that kind of fighter. He was locking himself up like you know, building up this wall so that nobody would be able to touch him emotionally. And he loved fighting and competition. <laughs> so, yes, I, I think that, that was really character building in his life. I was really struck reading your book, how much poverty he had to deal with. His whole family, they had so little, basically. Can you talk about that time? Yeah, you know, when, when I started reading about this and, and started looking at the sources in the archive in Mönchengladbach about his family and there are some registration cards and, and you can see how often they moved and you can, you can also see um, that his brothers and sisters, he lost four of his younger brothers and sisters, they died as babies and small children. So you can really see that the living conditions of this family were really, really hard. And I mean, I was born 100 years later in Germany, and this was a completely different childhood, completely different country. Um, at that time, a working class family like 
Joe's family. His father was, was a locksmith and he was working in a factory. His mother had been a factory worker as well, but she had to quit her job when, when she had children because the household at that time that was also a full-time job and that was hard labor from dusk till dawn. So they, they didn't have much money. His father, um, after the children grew up and, and when the children were adults, his father advanced and, and he became a foreman in the factory. He moved to Gelsenkirchen and became a foreman. So later in life, his father had a, had a better income, but that didn't help when, when he had many small children and had to feed the whole family. So what happened was that the Pilates family had to move houses every year. And when I saw this on the registration card, I thought, this can't be true. I mean, this must be hell. You know, at the time, I also had two small children. And, and just to imagine to move houses every year with so many children just seemed impossible to me. Was that happening because more babies were being born and there was less room? So they had to just keep finding bigger and bigger or they didn't have the money they couldn't afford, so they had to go somewhere else. Yeah, and unfortunately, they didn't, you know, if, if we look at it, they usually lived in one room, one room where they were also cooking, sleeping, and the whole family was staying there during the day. So, and, and they didn't move to bigger houses. They, they just moved from one cheap apartment to the other. They often sub-rented in a flat or another family lived and, and they sub-rented rooms. And another option was to move into a newly built house, which was not quite ready yet. And when the walls were still damp, the owners usually rented these houses for a very cheap rate. Uh -oh. So poor families would move mold. in. And as soon I'm as... hearing mold. Yeah, it, this, this was, you know, there, there was so much moisture there and, and you shouldn't have lived there. And this practice, this was forbidden. There was a law that this was forbidden, but people still did it because they could make money. So the, the family lived there until it was bearable and, and the house um, was fine. And then the rent was, um, went up and uh, yeah, people with more money would move in. In total, how many brothers and sisters did Joe have? Yeah, when, when I wrote the book and did the research, I thought there were nine children, that he had eight brothers and sisters, because I was looking on the registration card, which I found in the Mönchengladbach archive. And three of these brothers and sisters died as, as small kids. And only this year, Kathy Streck, you, you have been talking to her as well. And she found on Ancestry, she found the birth certificate and death certificate of another brother. And he died when he was just 10 months old. And that's why he hadn't been included in the registration card, because the registration card was only written after his death. So only the children who died after that were included in, in the card. And so there were 10 children and four of them died. And, you know, when, when I saw this, I, I just couldn't believe it. It's such a tragedy, you know, to, to lose so many children. And, but what I found out when I did the, some background reading is that in that time in Prussia, this was really the average, actually. Like 
out of five children, only four lived up to their first birthday. And then afterwards, also many children died. And if you look in the papers in this time, there's a column which um, gives the reason for, for the death of children. And it always says measles, measles oh. and diarrhea. Oh. So this was like diarrhea was something um, the, the bacteria spread on these shared bathrooms. People, all the people who were living in the house were using one toilet and bathroom in, in the backyard. So the, the diseases spread and they didn't have vaccination against the measles. So, so many children were, were dying from the measles in, in that time. That was a, a very fertile period. I'm thinking of the women at that time. I don't know what they were doing, but they were very fertile. You know, they didn't have they, they no didn't birth, have, control. Um, birth control. So I, I don't think they, they wanted to do this. Most of them had a child every year and it really ruined their bodies. Because, and and Joe's mother, she died when she was just my age. She, she was 40 years old when she died, but she had had 10 children, you know, and she had no opportunity to to heal after after the birth and um there was um a very famous gymnast who was um around 1900 starting um gymnastics for women so that women could you know go back to health after after giving birth um she was called best manson deek and she certainly was one of um, an inspiration to joe pilates as well and i think she really started changing things for for women she developed a, a system or she developed exercises. She create, did she create a, a mat routine like Joe did or specifically for women's, I'm sure their pelvic floor. Exactly. And she was, she was creating this mat routine for women. And she was talking already about the center, how you should focus on the center. How could you could work with it? And there are wonderful pictures in her books of her exercises um, and it's really interesting to look at this because the um, woman who shows the exercises, she's completely naked. And this was really the spirit of the time. Um, um, nudism was really popular in, in Germany and people were just trying to get rid of too many clothes <laughs> they had been wearing before. And she was showing these exercises in the nude so that women could really see, you know, which muscles she, she was um, using, where you had to work at, uh, at what point. And some of the exercises are extremely similar to Joe's. Would you say that she was the mother of gymnastics, the gymnastic movement? Well, um, she might have, she, she was a big influence and she was extremely popular in Germany. There even was a verb. People said, oh, I'm going to Menzendieck, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, she she was really popular. But before that, 100 years before that, there was the Turnen movement in Germany. And this was really the roots of the gymnastics, of the German gymnastics Turnen. This was something which rather came from soldier, you know, so soldiers who um, had to get fit during um, the war against Napoleon in the beginning of the 19th century. So this was the Torno movement, which um, started and really influenced all the body techniques in, in Germany the most, and also Joe Pilates, 
because that's what he learned as a child. He suffered a lot of loss, right? I'm wondering, what do you think kept him going? Or I think he probably felt, I don't know, but it seemed like he, something was guiding him and taking him forward. He obviously had some sort of passion to remain alive and to remain fit. What do you think kept him going? Even though he had all this loss growing up, can you imagine being not just losing siblings, but you're all living in the same room, cooking, bathing, the whole thing. What must that be for a young one and how that stays with them? What do you think kept him going? Because he ends up, even though he probably had this big wall, maybe his whole life, this wall around him, he was very single-minded and had such a focus on health. Do you think because he didn't have it as a small boy and saw a lot of unhealthy people around him? Yeah, you know, I'm sure he had a big, a huge need for fresh air, for light, for the sun and, and, and for health in, in general. And I think he had, there were, there were two passions that kept him alive. And one, one of these passions I really connected to a lot during the last um, couple of years, that was nature. He, he loved spending time in nature, in the forest. I mean, later when he had his weekend home near Jacob's Pillow in, in the Berkshire Mountains, he needed that. He, he really needed to, to be somewhere um, among trees and <laughs> animals and out of the city. So I think that that was one thing. And and he, he even in his childhood, he went to the forest a lot and just to have time and also space to himself and yeah to get out of out of the crowded room he was in his head a lot right he was even though he's all all about the physical he was very much in his head yeah he, he, he was in his head he was his body his heart was um he never really liked going to too much he didn't visit there often no not yeah but i i think um the his deepest passion and really his vocation, which he found really early in his life was body culture, the body. And when his father took him to the Turnverein, the gymnastic club, when he was a boy and he started learning the classical exercises of German Turnen, he just realized that he had this ability that he he had a special gift to feel his own body and also to, if he was looking at the body of other people, he, he, he could immediately see um, what they didn't get at the exercise or how, how they would have to move differently in order to, to do it. At this gymnastics club of his father's, he also learned strength training. And in this respect, he was really privileged, even though his family was poor. He was among the pioneers of bodybuilding. Oh. Um, because his father 
um, was really interested in, in strength training. And we have this picture of his father standing in the backyard of the Mönchengladbach city hall and leaning on a pair of barbells. So this is proof that his father was even in the late 19th century among the pioneers of strength training and bodybuilding. And Joe was with him. So I think um, this really made it easy for him to, to form this passion and to live it and to start living it. Did his father have a gymnastic club and a boxing club? No, no, his father, um, this was a public club. Maybe club is not the right translation in English. In, in Germany, it's if people... Like a health center or... Yeah, yeah, like a community center, you know, like or if people can form um, communities in, in Germany, we say Verein. Yeah, you do gymnastics or you're interested in... Um, postmarks or whatever and then you meet and and you have a you you elect certain people um who do the administration and that kind of thing it sounds like a community center an organized yeah it, it was it was um in, in germany the turnvereine these centers for gymnastics they were in every city in almost in every village they existed Because they, they had been founded in the early 19th century um, and, and the goal had been in, in the beginning to make men fit for war. So, um, so this was really the objective in the beginning and, and they had to do the exercises um, in order to be stronger. You know, that, that, that was the idea. God forbid they just, God forbid they would just want a, a generation just to be healthy. No, they have to go and fight and kill. Yeah, so so this was really where, where this started. And that but that's why um there were so many of these Turnvereins centers. And um during the 19th century, this slowly this changed and the uh, um it was not so much about war anymore, but it uh, it was more about um the body and and then they they included also other kinds of sports into their um, centers, for instance, boxing. That's what I wanted. Uh, that's what I wanted you to get to was the boxing aspect and how that yeah. influenced him. Yeah, because um, Joe's father didn't have a boxing club or a boxing gym or a boxing school because that was forbidden at that time. So when, when Joe Pilatus was a, was a kid in Germany, it was um, there was a ban on public boxing and a ban on professional boxing because that was the enemy sport. It was um, a British sport, an English sport. So this was not allowed um, for people to, to do that in, in Germany. And actually it was similar with soccer. <laughs> it, it sounds completely crazy to us, but they, they thought like that. But some people thought differently, for instance, Joe's father, and, and they, they started training boxing in these Turnvereine. And he was a natural with boxing as he was with gymnastics, I'm assuming. Yeah, I mean, I think this was just his gift for the body, for everything connected with movement. He, he could do it. Yeah, it's astounding. His body was ready for it and it, he was built for it. 
Yeah, he he looked like a boxer um, when you when you look at <laughs> yeah. that barrel, that barrelly chest. You alluded to the physical culture, and we don't really hear that now in the 21st century. Can you explain what that movement? Would you call it a movement? Yeah, I, I think um, this was a movement in, in Germany. The German term is Körperkultur. The translation would be body culture or physical culture. And this movement included all kinds of activities connected with the body. And it started around the turn of the century and it became bigger and bigger. And in the 1920s in, in Germany, it was really huge and there was modern dance i mean people like laban and mary wigman really um, were extremely innovative oh. in that field there, there were gymnastics and many new approaches to the body and, and gymnastics there were several sorts of sports and you know boxing and new sports which had been banned before the war and, and people loved doing it and there were many influences from the Far East. So people get interested in Hatha Yoga. And there were books about the exercises. And there were small circles in several cities where people met and did um, Hatha Yoga. And, and the most important thing probably was the nudism movement. And this was called Freikörperkultur, so free body culture. Wow. And they had they had centers in every city, in every town <laughs> here in Stuttgart. We, we still have some some of these. They they're um, up just uh, hidden away though. Close to the to the city. Oh not hidden they, away. They're still there. And but today you can go there and be dressed as well. But at that time if you went there, if you went um, into the area, you just got out of your clothes and then they did everything there, eating, they did exercises together and they were just spending their time naked and under the fresh air, in the fresh <laughs> air and under the sun. There were millions of people who were practicing nudists in the 1920s in, in Germany and I I was really, when I read about this, I, I was so fascinated about this. And it's so interesting because many things they did and, and what they wrote, and it's interesting for us. It's not so different thinking or how, how we um, do exercises. Well, that, that influenced Joe as well, because he encouraged people not to wear too much on their bodies. Exactly. Like, I mean, he, he took so much from, from this um, physical culture movement and, and included it in his approach and in, in his method. But there, there was something he didn't include. And this is one of the things I really, yeah, I was really happy about when I saw that, because when I read about um, these um, body culture movement, there was also some aspects um, which I found pretty shocking. And that's the racist part of it. Because very often these um, nudism clubs, for instance, they had rules 
that only people who looked like a German, you know, who looked like a Germanic person would be uh -oh. um, able to join them. So if you had Jewish, Jewish heritage, if you were smaller or if you had a disability, you were not allowed to join the club. And this was in the 1920s, so it was uh, quite some time before the Nazis took over. So this was a very strong part of, of this um, physical culture movement. And I thought it, it was so great that Joseph Pilates didn't take this part. And he really didn't. He really had a different idea because already in the, in the 1920s, when he um, had his reformer yeah. patented for the first time in Germany, he wrote in the description that he had developed this device, especially so that people who had injuries or who had disabilities, that ailing people could also use it. So from the beginning, he had this idea that everybody should, should have the possibility to work with their body, no matter from what point. And if you cannot move, You, he will give you an opportunity to start moving. And if you're a professional dancer, there will also be something you can improve in your body. The reformer patent was in Germany. It happened in Germany. Do you know what year? In 1924. And then one year later, he went to the United States and he had a, a translation made and changed Some things, and then he had it patented in the United States one year later when he was still living in, in Hamburg. But this really came out of his work in, in Hamburg. He had developed it when he was working with rehabilitation patients. The reformer wasn't his first invention, though, was it? No, there was the foot corrector. <laughs> That was uh, the, the first um, device he, he developed um, in 1922. Before he went to America, there's England. And there, there are controversial stories as to when and how he made it to England. Can you speak about that? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I spend a lot of time to find out. I would have loved to solve this <laughs> and to find out whether he went in 1912 or in 1914. Um, but I... I was not able to find proof that he went at all. <laughs> so he was not on any ship statement um, of Germans entering Britain. I went through all the ship statements from 1914, 1913, 1912. He, he was not on it. And then I did some background reading and found out that this was really the common practice at that time for Germans because there were many Germans who went to England to find a job which was better paid and they were just illegal immigrants um, and they just went in without registering because that would have been far too complicated and yeah you just went in and, and find a job and yeah didn't care about the rest so that's what he most probably did and that's why we cannot determine for sure whether he went in 1912 or 1914. But at that time period, he was definitely in England. Well, he was definitely in England in 1914 because then he was um, arrested and interned in 1914. 
Can you talk about that time? Because this is right before uh, World War I broke out. And in England, there was a lot of anti-German sentiment, which is so ironic if we're talking about World War II, the next war. But they rounded up Joseph Pilates and as many other German nationals as they could find. And they sent them to a camp in England, Lancaster, England. But most people that have read about Joe's life, they just basically know the Isle of Man. Were there other camps or how did they, they were like camp hopping. How did they go from one camp to the next camp and why? Yeah, you know, I mean, there, were, there was anti-German sentiment even before the war, but after the war broke out, um, the, the people in England got really angry. Um, and this is really understandable because the German army had invaded Belgium and Belgium had declared neutrality. So they had invaded a neutral country and then they started killing civilians in Belgium. So there were thousands of people being shot by German soldiers, children, women, unarmed men. And this is what made the people angry. And now the sad thing is that in, in London, the mob formed and they they wanted to punish someone. And then they started punishing the civilians who were living in England um, and had German roots or German nationality. So they were destroying German bakeries and um, butchers. So people who had actually not been invading Belgium, but they just were, became the scapegoats at that point. The government, after the war, war broke out, the, the British government quickly decided to intern civilians, so-called enemy aliens, um, German nationals, Austro-Hungarian nationals, and also the Turkish nationals. And, and they wanted to intern the men of military age so that they wouldn't go back to their country of origin and join the army. And if you look at it from that point, it, it makes sense. But if you look at it from the point of the people who were interned, it didn't make sense at all because most of them had been living in England for a very long time and they had their life there. They were married to English women. Their sons were joining the British army and, and they had to be locked up. So this is really a tragedy for them. And, and because the, the government had decided so quickly to intern people, they didn't have the time to set up camps. So the so-called camp in Lancaster where Joe went, this was just an old factory ground. There was some, some rundown buildings and some yard. And this was really not, not a good place to accommodate people. So there were no beds, nothing like that. They had to sleep on the floor. They got a bit of straw and that was it. So when, when the government saw that the war would go on for longer, they started planning camps. And that's when, when the Isle of Man came in and they, they were planning this huge internment camp for civilians on the Isle of Man. And this was so big. There, there were up to 23,000 internees plus the administration staff. The internees were brought from England, from Scotland, from different parts of the um, British Empire. They were also taken from ships. 
you know, if um, if uh, there were neutral countries and and they were still um, sailing, and if, for instance, a ship from Sweden was sailing um, through English waters, they um, oh, they captured them, um, and then there were sailors who had a German passport. They were taken from the ship and also sent to the Isle of Man. Can you describe, at least in the beginning, what the Camp Nikalo was, especially in the beginning before things got organized, or was it all already organized in, in 1914? Yeah, so I, I actually, I don't know when, when Nokalo started, because Joe Pilates only came to Nokalo in September 1915. I, I don't know for how many months it had existed, um, but this was really when, when the camp started to be filled up with people and the conditions were not great. <laughs> there, there are several reports by the Red Cross and there were long lists of um, improvements that should be made so that, so that the conditions for the internees um, would be bearable. But in in contrast to the wait a second, let me yeah. let me stop you right there. The Red Cross in America got involved in in the beginning. The American embassy, not even the Red Cross, but the American embassy, was um, taking care of the civilians who were interned in Britain, and because they were sort of they they had not joined the war. And so as a neutral party, they um, inspected the, the camps in Great Britain, but also in Germany. The, the, because the Germans also interned British civilians. And, and they um, wrote reports and sent them to, to the government. So, and the government had to um, change things and improve them for the internees and there was also the red cross was also involved and the german red cross they were taking care of the prisoners needs as well the prisoners had the right to write letters and so they they could write to the red cross and for instance if they didn't have enough food and the red cross would try to intervene and or, or they would also send packages and then what was really important in Nokelo were the quakers wow the quakers were helping um the internees so much and and they were helping to set up all the workshops so that people could do something and fi find some occupation so they would not go crazy <laughs> just sitting there all day and um, these were also Quakers um, from from England who uh, just um, you know they how to say that to collect money they, they collected money to help um, the the prisoners on on the Isle of Man. People donated money for their cause. They don't. Yeah, right. Exactly. They and and the Quakers um, collected donations and and they also you know they they started to they asked businesses so that the internees could for instance make things and then sell it to businesses so they they did that kind of thing yeah they, they were really taking care care of the of the internees in terms of writing letters is there any proof that joe or is there any documentation that joe wrote home or he wrote letters to 
someone that he was connected to? Unfortunately, we don't have letters from him from, from that period. That's exactly what the, the kind of problem, you know, if he had been famous at that time, someone would have collected his letters. Right. But if you're just some unknown person who's um, in some kind of camp, it's not going to the archive. So, but I found one um, mention or several mentions of him from that time in the camp. And when I was going through these folders of the German Red Cross in, in the Bundesarchiv in Berlin, um, I found a, a flyer or, you know, like, like a leaflet, which was announcing a show, a vaudeville show. And Joe Vilatis took part in it and, and he did two acts. He was doing a balancing act on chairs and ladders and also a strength act. And he had this group of four men and they, they did this together in, in this show in 1917. And, and I was so happy when, when I found this because that was finally proof that he did something connected with a circus. Because I had been so, um, so much looking for some circus connection and I couldn't find anything. And now I know at least in Okalo one time he was taking part in a circus. There's uh, documentation also, or people have written about uh, Joe observing other internees and their lack of interest in life. You know, you have barbed wire miles and miles all around you. You obviously aren't going anywhere. And he, he had maybe this altruistic side to him and he wanted to help. And the way he could help was to get these men to find their bodies, find their core strength. How did that part of his time on the Isle of Man play out? Yeah, I think... Like we've been talking much about the hardship in the camp and, and the conditions. And I think for, for most of the internists, it was really so horrible to, to be there. And, and there was even a word for those people who were walking around the fence. And they, they said he, they get the camp vogel. It's like they go camp crazy, something like that. And if, if they started losing their wits... So for Joe Pilatus, on the other hand, I think to, to be in Nakalo was really... Um, an opportunity. It was an opportunity and a, and a good turn of fortune because this was the time when he was finally able to live his vocation and, and to start working with other people and helping them with their bodies. And I mean, nothing is more fulfilling than helping other people. And, and if you can improve their health, their general health, and also their mental health at, at this point, I think this was just wonderful for him. And this was really life-changing for him. And this was why when he returned to Germany after the war, he had the lots of ideas and the body of work yeah lots of ideas and and also he, he was able to call himself a, a sports teacher and he could see himself as someone working in in body culture and he set up a boxing school so his experience in, in Nakalo really changed his life and and the, the pace his life went 
I wonder if any of the internees who learned from Joe and gained their strength back and now had a sense of wanting to live, I wonder if any of those internees wrote about their experience with Joe just when they're writing home, if they talked about this teacher, this master teacher, I don't know what they call it. Did they call them instructors? What did he, a trainer? I, I haven't found um, such letters, but I'm sure there are some letters that would just be really difficult um, to find them. But it might be possible to find some of these letters when more archives will be digitalizing their um, collections and we will be able to search online. And then and you could search for the name Pilatus. But right now we haven't found any of those letters. But um, what I found, for instance, was there's a boxing magazine in, in Germany. It's called Boxsport. And people refer to him in, in this magazine. Joseph Pilatus, um, the person you all know from Nakalo, um, who helped us. So I don't know how they refer to him and if he had any, if there, were, there was a name for what he did, because what he didn't do, he didn't form an official club. There were gymnastic clubs in Okalo, but I mean, that was really in his character. He never cared much about paperwork. And <laughs> so he just did it, you know, he just gathered people and, and they did the exercises and for him, that was okay. He was so oblivious, right? He was so oblivious and was just completely into the body. And he probably was shocked that he would be rounded up with all of these other German nationals because he's busy preparing his body and wanting to help others. Yeah, he, there are also memories of him that he said he didn't understand why he would be there. <laughs> so, but, but this was um, the same for everybody else but he didn't see that he he only saw that um it doesn't make sense that i that i am here <laughs> of yeah. course but yeah i think uh, if you look at it with a distance it, it was wonderful for him because it was the first time he didn't have to earn his living you know he didn't have to spend all day to work in a job he didn't like he just had um, the whole day to to train to also he was such an important part of the boxing scene so he he met so many people and when they all came back to germany they started the professional boxing scene and also the amateur boxing scene they started the whole boxing scene in germany and they won all the titles so he was just um so extremely well connected <laughs> by knowing the boxers from Nakalo. Yeah. And knowing the body, knowing the body and knowing how to work with these future boxers. I have one, one last question, and maybe it's a two-part question. I don't know. Was he considered a nurse on the island? And if so, is that the reason why, if it's true that he worked in a hospital? And then if that's true, can you set the record straight about the springs were that was that too many questions <laughs> no I, i'll try to to answer that but but it's also it's, um these are difficult questions because of the fact uh, what i already mentioned he didn't 
like to register so much so there's no proof really that he was a there's nurse. no proof that he was a nurse and that really means he was not a nurse so he, he definitely didn't work as a nurse he didn't have a position as a nurse in the hospital wing in Michaelo because this is also um there were certain things you had to fulfill if you wanted to become a nurse and and one of them was you had to be able to speak English because the doctors from the camp administration spoke English and you had to be able to translate what the doctors said to the to the sick people and vice versa so and and Joe Pilates his English was not um sufficient at, at that time and probably never was so he, he was not an official nurse in the hospital wing, but that doesn't mean he didn't go there sometime and and work with people and, and help and just help. And he definitely did that when he, several years later, when he was working in Hamburg in rehabilitation. So I think it, it's possible that later in the United States, when he was telling about his time in Mercalo, maybe he was mixing that up a little and actually talking about, um, because he was um, cooperating with the hospital in, in Hamburg and he was working with former soldiers who had war injuries and he did that in, in Hamburg. So maybe he, maybe these were memories from Hamburg and maybe sometimes he had been to the hospital wing, but he didn't work there. When you say there, where's there? <laughs> in the hospital wing in Nokalo, because um, in the uh, in the living barracks, um, there were wooden beds, so there were no springs and there were also no mattresses. They just had straw sacks. But in the hospital wings, there were these metal beds and they had springs to hold the mattresses and and there's some there's a huge collection of of pictures in Manx Museum and you can look at all of them online and they can see some of these hospital beds um, with the springs so it would have been possible but then on the other hand um, in his first patent for the reformer he didn't in, in the picture he didn't use a, a spring to work against, but he used the weight. Maybe he hadn't made that connection and yet. He had, he had, because he mentioned springs in the text. He, he mentioned that you could also use springs, but he, at that point, he used the You probably couldn't get him. If you don't have a weight for, yeah, maybe, yeah. So I'm just not sure. Maybe first there was the weight and then he, he tried out springs um, in Hamburg, or he might have tried out springs first when Nokalo and then change to the weight and then change back to the springs. But probably just having the springs, a visual of the springs at the hospital on the island planted a seed and maybe all at his disposal were weights. So, but in his mind, he's maybe thinking that would be another way to find that resistance. And then as soon as he had access to springs and then it just opened up this whole other creative avenue for him. I'd like to ask you to come back. I know all of our listeners look forward to hearing when Joe arrives in America, what that time frame was like. Certainly we're talking 1926, 1925. Well, he, he went to, to New York for the first time in 1925 and then um, this emigration took place in 1926. 
And we had him from 1926, I believe, until 1967. Yeah. And, and then he was staying. I mean, we've been talking about so many different places um, today and, and, and we didn't mention half of uh, his addresses and the cities where he lived. So th this is this is why this is why everyone who doesn't have Eva's book is, go is going to go out and get her book. I hope so. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and then he comes to New York and he moves into 8th Avenue and he stays there until the rest of his life. Incredible. And you're offering a 10% discount, I believe. Is that true? Yeah. Just for the listeners of your podcast. Excellent. I'll put that in the show notes, but just for everybody, it's all things Pilates 20. Okay. Well, we all can't wait to uh, speak with you again and to learn more about who Joe was, who he was besides this genius person. He was a flawed man, a hurt little boy, and how he navigated his life. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about this wonderful New York period and the time when he finally arrived. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you again um, for having me and looking forward to talking to you soon. All Things Pilates is produced, edited, and hosted by me, Darian Gold. Mastered audio mix by Fabian Romero. Theme music, Soul Blue Piano Shuffle by Boom Zoom. For all of my listeners who haven't bought Eva's book yet, She's offering a 10% discount by using the code ALLTHINGSPILATES20. Eva will be back again for part two of her biography as Joe Pilates finds his way to America and almost single-handedly changes the way we perceive exercise. Isn't life so much about perception and how we interpret reality? When we read about other people's lives, do we imagine what it might be like to step into their stories? If you were to write your autobiography, would you naturally leave out the uncomfortable parts? Or would you allow your readers to see your imperfections? I think if we can live our lives with more authenticity, and a willingness to be open to new concepts and approaches to our lives, we may discover an entirely new self. As always, I remain in awe of Joe's work, and I look forward to being with you again for another episode on All Things Pilates.